Welcome back to Reflection as a Service. I'm here, Paul Merrill, one of your co-hosts, joined by... James Jeffers. And we're here to talk about software development, entrepreneurship, and uh, and fun things technical. James, how is your week going? My week's going good. Uh, it's like the, pretty much the first full working week after the New Year's and Christmas holiday and uh, getting back into the swing of things. And of course, our son is getting ready for... Uh, his last year of middle school, so it's it's all about figuring out which high school he gets to go to next year. Fun, and you have some choices in this area in the, in the triangle. Yeah, we've got some choices. Uh, I think we're looking at uh, mostly STEM schools, either like the uh, early college uh, STEM school for the county, uh, or uh, more science oriented schools around. Um, even his base school has a pretty interesting interla- international baccalaureate program. So we've got some options. We're still looking at it. Some of them are by lottery, so it's not guaranteed that you'll get into the school that you want. So, gotcha. Yeah, it is cool that they have some options around here, though, and I think that's one of the one of the things that could potentially be a draw for folks to come here into the research triangle area. Um, but hey, look, as you know, uh, we've got we, we've talked a lot about Josh Anderson from Dude Solutions coming on and talking. He's going to come actually next episode. We thought he was going to come this episode, but it's going to be next episode. We promise he's coming tonight. We've got a really cool guest, uh, my, a longtime friend of mine, Vic Wigman, uh, is going to join us, and I'm going to I'm going to introduce him here in a second. But he's going to talk about DNA and about uh, genetics and all that stuff. I know very little about it, but he's going to tell us all about it and about their software process they work with um, at Q Squared. Um, but we'll we'll get to him in just a minute. A couple of points of business, like I said, Josh Anderson is coming. They have a tech day, James, over at Dude Solutions coming up at the end of January. I did see that. And I'm sure if he were here, he would want to promote that. So I just want to talk about that real quick. It sounds like it's a really cool way to learn more about Dude Solutions. And of course, they're hiring like crazy. Yeah, and I think I also saw that they're inviting everybody in the area to, to come come to that. Yeah, I think there is a registration process. Uh, so I, I would imagine you can look up Dude Solutions online and, and find that pretty easily. So I'll be out at TriTog, which is the Triangle Test Automation Users Group at Bronto on the 27th of January. And I'll be talking about data strategies for automated testing and how you manage your data uh, as a test automation team and how that affects everybody else. What I'm looking for is kind of going to be an open forum where we talk about some of the concepts first and then you bring the ways that you manage your data so that we can all talk about them together. I think that there are very few strategies for doing this, but nobody's really formalized those patterns yet. So what I want to do is kind of get more ideas and make sure that we, I have a full understanding of those before um, trying to make those a little bit more formal in talking at Tiska in March. So that, that will also be the subject there, but it'd be more formalized at that time. So anyway, let's get going. Uh, our guest tonight is Dr. Vic Wigman. He has been doing biomarker discovery research with genomics for over 10 years, with seven of those being with expression analysis a Q-squared solutions company. He obtained his PhD at the University of North Carolina in biology and bioinformatics within the Lindberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. He has published 14 papers on biomarker identification and assay development over that time and has contributed to the development and launch of several genomic CLIA assays. Dr. Wigman currently directs the translational genomics unit of Q-squared solutions, whose goal is the continued facilitation of preclinical drug development through biomarker identification. Ongoing research revolves around the genomic profiling of solid tumors from both DNA and RNA approaches, including the development of robust assays that can be leveraged as laboratory-developed tests. And welcome to the show, Vic. 
Oh, thanks, Paul. Uh, thanks, James. So, you know, the, reading the uh, introduction, it doesn't necessarily scream data analytics and software. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that, though. I know that it does. <laughs> I know that it does. And, and I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, how often do you get to sit down with a real, uh, a, a real PhD in genomics? And I think that's something that the listeners will really enjoy. So uh, I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you. That is a whole breath of air right there. <laughs> and clearly you've worked really hard throughout your career to get to That's where you are. Corporate communication set up that bio. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give that to them. And of course, none of what of what uh, Vic talks about today is is endorsed by Q-squared or EA. That's right. <laughs> just, like, just like everybody else, you, just you, like, you unshroud the, the uh, uh, corporate mask and I'm a schmo like everybody else. <laughs> my opinions are what slog it takes from, you know, plugging up your first server to creating uh, uh, pipelines, procedures, and software to choke through 8 to 10 terabytes of data a day. Wow. You know, well, maybe that's a good place to start. So 8 to 10 terabytes of data a day. That's correct. Is what you create? <clears throat> that's correct. So what is that? Is that actual sequences of genes? Or? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it could be along uh, the grand milieu of genomic information. So DNA, RNA, um, of course, I'm going to wax on the, the genome. Um, central dogma, but everybody has DNA. People are really familiar with that. That's a household term now. When you take the instructions from that DNA, if DNA is the blueprint, when you physically read and provide instructions from that DNA, that's RNA. Then once those instructions become workers, action, you know, making something happen in the body, that becomes the protein. So we're actually taking measurements on DNA and RNA because, believe it or not, be taking tons of simultaneous measurements on the protein is still advancing but very a long 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 way off so what we're generating is that sequence information so we've gone through tons of processes and trial and error and untold sums of money to various hard disk companies to <laughs> to allow us to be able to store and process that efficiently over the last uh, uh, seven years of me working there gotcha so is this actually this is how the proteins uh contort themselves into certain types of tissue and things? And that's a very, DNA that's a difficult thing in itself, but the DNA and RNA is providing instructions for how, for how that happens. Okay. All right. So as proteins are, are, you know, how your, your drugs are getting uh, uh, affecting, but the kind of entry level or signatures that you're going to expect from, you're going to be doing the D RNA measurements from. And because that's always very difficult sometimes for people's mutations. They're like, oh, I have this disease or I have this cancer. It's determined by these mutations. You look back in that DNA, whether that was something inherited from your parents or something that was elicited by a given disease. Okay, so let me make sure I understand this. You, you basically, you've got a specimen of some type that's come from a patient, and it's a specimen of DNA of some type. Mm -hmm. You're looking at it to find certain irregularities or certain sequences that don't match an expected set of sequences. Correct. And when you do that, somehow you generate tons and tons of data. Is that because there's so much DNA? That, that's, that, that is, and they have to have so many measurements of said DNA. So I'll walk you through a, a, a classic example. Well, I'll say a classic example. I'll walk you through a contemporary example of a uh, cancer test that we have. We run it here in the U.S. We actually run it here in Asia. We have a Japanese hospital network that, that's running this kind of test. Someone comes, they get a cancer that has not responded to any type of treatment that's standard. We now get their tumor because it's last-ditch last effort. <clears throat> they ship it straight from Japan or other hospitals in the U.S. to my 
place. We do our magic sauce in the lab, which I will completely gloss over given the topic here. Um, load it onto the sequencing machines, and we generate about six to eight gigabytes of data per that given patient. So when we mash up the person's tumor, we're creating thousands and thousands of copies of, of the person's DNA. Some of it tumor, some of it themselves. Because tumor is a, a very homo- a heterogeneous entity, we have to sample that much because we're trying to find the needle in the haystack. We're trying to find a mutation of the um, harmful part of that tumor out of all the noise. So we're actually measuring all those different copies. So a single person's DNA is not what generates all the data. It's because we're sampling all the person's DNA and not through the whole genome because that's so expensive. It's crazy. Um, but we're actually picked the parts of the genome that elicit cancerous responses. In fact, in this case, 223 genes. And we're sequencing them to 2,000 2, measurements were taken per time. So we can find a mutation that would happen in 5% of the cells. So we have to generate that much data in order for the analytics to pick something that's sensitive up because current testing methods will only find a mutation in 25% of the cells, which is why you can give somebody a, a treatment, they respond, tumor shrinks, and they're, hey, we're in remission. But in reality, a year later, it comes back stronger than ever. It's no different than the U.S. Forestry Service lighting a fire to kill all the underbrush in a forest. Now you've just paved way for an invasive species to have free run. Our, ability, our software now is so sensitive that we can now do combination therapies to kill all these microcosms of cancers all at the same time. So when a person submits their tumor, at the end, we tell them what, um, because it's not only a uh, software and algorithmic part to identify those mutations, but it's a big data database uh, issue to be able to build the infrastructure to search all of the therapeutic responses and all the active clinical trials to actually be able to pair a person's tumor to a drug, pair it to a clinical trial in case no drug is approved. So you have the hardcore analytics and now you have the actual interfacing with public and private networks and databases to actually determine what their treatment strategy is going to be. So, so is that, that's a part of this, is that you're basically calling out to these libra- libraries or, or some piece of code that mm-hmm. has a, a model or an analysis that you have to compare your specimen to or mm-hmm. your, your, your data to to figure out if it works. Yeah, lo- that's yeah. part of this too. Yeah, luck- luckily, you know, we have a wealth of good reference information to where we're trying to find how you're different than what we think is the archetype. So you can find that very quickly then. We can find that particular thing very quickly. Right. But, but then matching it to something that might work is a whole News thing. flash becomes the, we can figure out why you're different than a reference data set. What we're not able to do, we, those who develop heuristics and algorithms to be able to predict this on the fly, um, what we're not able to do is predict which one of those mutations are causative or driving your individual tumor. Mm. So therefore, you know, I've got folks on my team that have doctorates in cancer cell biology and pharmacology and computer science and biostatistics. We've all come up together to create a heuristic to identify these mutations are the ones that are causing your, your disease. And then we can take those particular mutations, throw it up against this gigantic data source, which, you know, is probably about 250 
gigs worth of total database size that we're searching in the matter of you know an hour or so to identify treatment based on those mutations we thought were irrelevant. And then therefore, someone, a doctor gets a thing that says this person is mutated here, they should probably receive these treatments, things they would never get before. Wow. wow. That are individualized to their specific tumor. At no point during this discussion I talk about them versus everybody else who has liver cancer or pancreas cancer. It's only to their specific tumor. So wow. that underlying understanding of biochemistry is programmed into these extraneous databases I talked about. Gotcha. <clears throat> well, you talked about a number of different fields that you have and people specializing in certain fields that you have working for you. And some of those are folks with a uh, background in computer science, but most of them, it sounds like, are not. Is, is that true? Most of them you would have say, a background in bioinformatics? Or? If, if, you, if you look at their own paper, it would say that their backgrounds are in biology. I would say half and half wet and dry. When I say wet, I mean those who come from the non-computer science side who actually played with liquids. Right. <laughs> But um, every I, played, single, I had coffee a lot, right? right. <laughs> every single, every single person on my team uh, programs here. Yeah. Now, when I say programs, I don't mean software engineering. We're not having somebody generate features and requirements and send out code. this. That's the best verb for it. We are absolutely hacking the code um, because there doesn't exist some open source repository in a lot of cases to do some of the some of the sophisticated things we need to do. Now, we're an open source shop, which is crazy for an industry to have a clinical pipeline where the individual components are open source, but that's what it is. We have our own GitHub page. We disclose as much things about what we do as possible because there's no better judge than everybody else to agree that you're as good as you think you are. <laughs> right. right. That, that must be nice, dude. Does that happen a lot? <laughs> People tell you you really are as good as you think you are. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, they, they never come out and say those things. But when they when you sign contracts and you get multi-year contracts for you know large right. sums of money, that's you, that's, that's an indirect way. Builder, that's right. a, that's an indirect way of saying that what you're doing isn't poppycock. Right, right, right. Well, that's really cool, James. I, I, we've uh, Vic and I have been here talking, and and I know that you're online here somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking. While you were describing how you said everybody programs, it kind of reminded me of Starship Troopers, uh, where you know. Do you want to know more? Well, I was thinking Lieutenant Raza. Uh, oh, I forgot the lieutenant's name. Ratchek, perhaps. He says every everybody fights, nobody quits. So it's like everybody programs. Uh, <laughs> grab yourself a keyboard. But I'm kind of curious. Like how you said, uh, not everybody is a you know straight up computer scientist. But, you know, how do you coordinate programming activities across a group of, uh, it sounds like pretty smart people. Uh, I don't think you become a PhD in uh, molecular biology uh, and then you're like the same as a cubicle dweller in a, you know, in a, in a big corporation at a, like say a bank. It sounds like that's a different set of uh, management skills. You, you would think, <clears throat> but, but I would say in the, in the regulated world of doing clinical work, so a lot like I mentioned the cancer testing part, you're seeing a much stronger alignment towards that cubicle part of you know hardcore programmers. So again, for my specific team, and I'll highlight really quickly that um, the company right now, while Q squared is about uh, 2,200 people, 
um, in ten different countries. My particular lab, which is uh, you know one of the one of the heads of innovation, um, to create these kinds of specific cancer tests, it was about 130 people. When I started seven years ago, it was way less than 30, and at that point, you know, we're generating 100 gigs of data a day. Um, and people didn't program. We waited on the instrument providers to be able to tell us, here's your software. We're like, okay, that sounds great. Look, it's got buttons I can click. And it has a little minus sign and a box and an X. So I'm totally comfortable here. Um, that's not going to work. Um, we process so many samples a day. If you had somebody click on buttons, I just picture this. This is the new age Laverne and Shirley people counting all these bottles on <laughs> yeah. long assembly. What did you do today? I don't want to tell you because I'm embarrassed that I sit here and click the button this many times. Uh, um, but nonetheless, back to the back to the, the original prompt. Um, it is necessary for everybody to be able to program because the data types that we're handling are so complex that you need to be able to think about things discreetly, logically where you can get down and dirty, solve an immediate short-term problem with that global understanding of where that fits in the larger entity. So how do we organize that? I tell you what, if you guys invite me back in another year, maybe I'll have an answer for you. <laughs> but well, given, given, the not, yeah, given that you know, we started with three folks and now we're at 30, I have a kind of an idea of what that would look like. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's very different when you're like sole coder, system administrator, network administrator, yeah. um, efficiency expert, high performance computing person. Cl toilet unclogger. Exactly. Right. To actually <laughs> one who just hires people. Right. <laughs> it right. makes things very different. Well, so um, so tell us a little bit about your methodology, your, your software methodology. I mean, first of all, what are you coding in? You're in R? Uh, no, I would say a lot of the stuff primarily um, because me and, and the two other folks that we initially hired were all Perl programmers. Mm -hmm. Gasp those who all live you know, object-oriented until we die. Or like, no, you need to do something like Scalar or Julia or Ruby because that's the cool new hotness. It's what we had. It's what we went to school with. I'm going to put on my old man hat. And, and you're still in Perl. Uh, to some extent, part, yeah. some extent. Yeah, they say um, you can do object oriented pearl. You absolutely can. It's never looked very pretty to me. Well, no, it's not <laughs> supposed to look pretty. It's not. It's it's one of those things you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Right. You just taste it and it's delicious. Right. Um, but I would say, and I comment to another person on my team. You know, we're seeing more things in Python and Julia and Scala and things like that. And actually, it's really exciting because people are starting to leverage a whole lot of C incredibly efficient objects and things like that that we're leveraging to where a biologist who picks up a you know a Julia book can sit down and be like oh yeah let me do this I'm just going to use these routines not knowing at all the amount of efficiency that went into these numerical programs that went into it but uh, we do have a, uh, a separate division within uh, within the organization who is very efficient at coding things up in C and in objects and uh, compiled code because it's efficient for things that we do in lots of different ways. So most of these are like command, command prompt driven tools. Everything is completely, you know, terminal based. Everything okay, is right. put in Ubuntu. Everything right. is completely automated. But you're generating. I imagine you have to generate reports that are very clear and absolutely and concise. And so and, and so, how does that work? Do you tie into other tools for that? Mm -hmm. Right. So, so there are there are uh, a couple of different ways that you can basically program, and and to the uh, classics at heart, things like LaTeX, mm -hmm. 
or LaTeX or however people pronounce it. There are spinoffs of that. R has something called Weave, where you can basically program uh, a report that someone would read, a physical I actually, PDF. I actually saw that at a, uh, a meetup just the other day. It was uh, two nights ago, I think. Um, yeah. It was pretty cool. They showed R, and then they showed the reports that it makes, and it actually, you could show the code, and then it had the explanation, the scientific explanation of what they did through their procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty cool. But I would imagine, basically, that what you guys are producing is reports. That's right? what's correct, because a so, physician has to read them. Right. Your, your, your product, your end product is a report. It's not an application. It's not a service. It's, it's not any of that. You've got software that builds it, but the software in and of itself is completely in-house. It's not going to be used out, outside of you guys. It, could, it, could, be. it could be. So yeah, sometimes you license be. it or you allow partners to use it. We don't license a thing. We give it away as much as people oh, can because, I mean, the real power, and this goes to anybody in computer science or anybody in any field, your differentiator for one who's a solo coder or something along those lines, your differentiator is the ability to tackle problems. You lording over people, nickel and diming for this app or this package or this thing, not only doesn't build you friends, and I can go over a long laundry list of companies who do things like that. <laughs> <coughs> Um, that doesn't that 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 is a inhibitor to adoption. Gotcha. Um, so we've always licensed those. We've just given that stuff away. In fact, in many cases, I've had myself or members of my team go into a pharma company and basically lift the hood and tell them exactly how we solved the problem. What do we gain out of that? Because we're losing continued revenue on every chine of the crank and every sample that's processed. We can't build them because they built the structure in house. What we did do is create a trust factor and a quality factor and a um, friendship factor that leads to more business than that nickel and diming ever could have. Right. I mean, look at the big Red Hat building in downtown Raleigh. Clearly, there's other people who feel that's... I'm <laughs> not going to go. Open can't make money, right? Yeah. Open source make tons of money. <laughs> well, so, so maybe a little bit about your, your process here. I mean, just I, I, I'm trying to nail down what the process would have to encompass, but I guess... You know, one of the things that I find is every different company, every different team, every different individual has a different set of experiences, a different set of skills, a different set of potential um, that they can use in moving forward. And some of them do and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. And over time, what you see is small company, something that's a small company at one point or a small team at one point grows a little bit or gets a big contract or mm-hmm. something and suddenly their process has to change. They can't be based on the individual doing great things. They have to put a process around it so that you can... Um, leverage that process and, and grow in yeah. that way. And I would say that that building that process, there is no one good process. So if you well, and that, right. And, right, and that's exactly what I wanted to get to, right? Because I mean, here lately we've got everybody in the software world banging on the drum of agile. There, everybody is scrum agile, whatever. Well, agile is actually. Can a I can I put in bracket shutter? Can we do like ASCII kind of text <laughs> things along with the podcast where I go like shutter? Yeah, hashtag shutter. Right? <laughs> Ooh. I've sat in with those hands out. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so I mean, I, I love I love a lot of, uh, of of what the agile methodologies originally stood for in terms of lightweight design or, or lightweight methodology. Huh. I like a lot of what what is built into some of these methodologies with regard to having a healthy relationship between those who want something produced and those who produce it. Um, and treating people fairly and all that kind of stuff, having having good communication, all those things. Um, I don't think there's only one way to write software, and I think a lot of people out there think that. 
Well, those are conflicts that we even have in my own entity from those that are classically trained software engineers to everybody who can program. I'm, I'm sure. And, we and, have that conflict daily. Right. And, and then there's, there's, you know, when it comes down to you're not actually building a piece of software to deliver to a customer. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's the information coming out of your software that you're delivering. I would think that there are some very necessary things uh, that you have to change in order to make your methodology work. And that it's nothing like a typical Scrum shop. Yes, and I would say, you know, coming from when I first heard about Agile in like a scrum meeting, you know, I put on my, you know, uh, rugby daisy dukes and my, <laughs> my big cotton shirt and said, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tussle. And they're like, what are you doing? And uh, so I'll, I'll clear my jargon up for that. But the first thing and the most healthy thing everybody can do is that say that they all provide a different tool set to solve the problem. No one is more correct or more proper way to solving the problem than another. There are there are underlying fundamentals that oh, sure. that, that have oh, sure. good absolutely communication, are. good relationships, <clears throat> people first. These are these are independent of software. <laughs> <laughs> right. These happen all over the place. These are independent of software. But um, um, it's it becomes very difficult. Now let me let me talk a little bit about the evolution of our shop because I think that'll that'll set the pace for building this process part. So when we first began and keep in mind, you know, when I when I started here with the company. Yes, I have my doctorate in molecular biology, but my undergrad's in you know, biochemistry and uh, somewhat a minor in computer science as well, but I programmed the entire time in, in Perl and even in Visual Basic. You know, audience can gasp. <laughs> um, uh, but in any case, I did whatever I could because I came from biologist lab and people like to muck around with Excel. So yeah, it is in Visual Basic because it allowed buttons for people to press, and once you can press a button, you have power over, <laughs> over the thing. It uh, doesn't matter what happened under the, under behind the scenes. Nonetheless, <clears throat> you know, we had to write code. We now created, found this machine. My first day was unpacking, unpacking this machine. All these gigabytes of data we've never seen before. You know, I've got a, a pony rack of fiber optic connected, you know, hard drives to just just receive data. And now I need to churn through it. Well, my old school way of you know beginner pearl for bioinformatics wasn't cutting it. <laughs> Um, imagine that, right? Imagine that. So anyway, hacked a lot of stuff out, and by hack I mean I made a picture, literally, on a notebook of what the data should look like when I get done. I write the code, it looks that way, and I'm all done. Mm-hmm. Unit test, <laughs> what's that? I want to try to break my code, I just built this thing. <laughs> There's none of that. What was the name of it? Because I finished it up at 3.30 and more, it's probably called poop.pearl. Right. Um, which it probably held that name for an entire year, and it was written in the pipelines, hard-coded, because, you know, why would you not? Because <laughs> you know where it is. I would imagine it didn't go over marketing. They never saw it. <laughs> they couldn't understand what we did in the first place, let alone how the code worked. But anyway, so I write a code, and we, we hired our first um, other person whose sole job was like, what do you do every day? I program. I actually came from the lab, so that wasn't something I did. Um, our tasks were generated, unlike a classic software engineering shop, there wasn't an enterprise level and everybody got parts of that thing. We got micro requests from all of our clients to process data in all kinds of different ways and so everybody was just working as independent as possible, making as many tools as possible to format data, process data, make it into this file, integrate it into this database, Perl DBI, etc., etc. Fantastic. And we were saving it, you know, in our home space. Because you know, <laughs> that's no where source code control. What's that? This is, this is, oh, I heard Gene. I I heard it. I just, I just shuddered. (laughs) 
Uh, this is circa 2010, right? Source, source code. No, no. <laughs> That's because I'm the one who's writing it. No, no, Pa. For it was 2010. What were we doing? What were we doing? Yeah. Oh, we were together, weren't we? Yes. We had source code control. It was all we did. We did. Mm-hmm. You can't. Uh... Continuous integration. We had all kinds of stuff. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Well, this is really interesting, though, because, I mean, you have all these different people writing their own unique code for their own unique and because it's, And because it's a startup, no one's talking to each other. I mean, well, we go and have lunch and complain about how busy everybody is. But, but, this, is, but this is how problems evolve over time. I mean, you can't really figure out. I, personally, uh, when I go to design software, what I find is that if I can solve a specific case and then I solve another specific case within a class of problems then I start to understand the abstraction that would go along with it. Wow. And it sounds to me Spoken like, like a true software engineer. Right, but that sounds like what you're doing in this case, right? You've got a bunch of people writing different things, and eventually you say, hey, maybe I wrote something like that, and maybe you wrote something like that, and then you start working together to find ways to do this differently. And yeah, and I'll say, you know, let's span forward a couple, couple years, and um, at this point we have a team, at least for the hardcore programmers, uh, and those who are processing the data. We have got more machines. We create more data. You know, I convinced the board to buy a $250,000 hard drive, which is about the equivalent of me being like, I want to convince you to kill your firstborn. You know, hard drive, we're not a data company. Yes, you are. You're a data company. We need software. The end. Here's why. Which was and, and my this, first soiree into, the, into this kind of discussion. And this would have been back in like 2010, still? 2011, 2012. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, keep in mind now we have five, six people. And at some point, we realized when we actually started talking about what each other's code does and identifying, you know, hey, because we're all in this sort of war room, which I guess we used to, uh, uh, James mentioned the cubicle farm. Uh, we, we all moved to this, was a conference room. We gutted out all everything else. We put in desks, and it was our war room. You know, everybody got to shout out questions to the ether, and the ether provided answers. <laughs> Screw you, Siri. We, we did this old school. Um, we started realizing, yeah, I made that tool like three months ago. It's in this directory and it does this thing. And you look at the usage statement. What, what was that? The usage statement. What? That doesn't <laughs> exist. But then they would show you how it works. Like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. Cool. We should write that up. We ain't got time for that. Then we decided we made time for that. So at that time when we did a, an audit of our own self, you know, from the time where I logged in my first Perl program in the first computer that I put together to four years down the road, we had 1,100 pieces of software managing, you know, several million dollars worth of accounts. This wasn't clinical, so people who are wondering, like, oh, my God, my test result could have been handled by this? No, 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 no. This is all research. 1,100 pieces of code. How much of it, how much of it was redundant? It would shutter them. Actually, it wouldn't surprise you two guys. But for us, it, 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 it exploded. We would do things like, you know, grip for this common service let's say format to something and 300 pieces of code pop up and they all are named basically the same so if you hand a sheet of paper to this person with all these names they're like well what's different between them mm-hmm. yeah what is different nothing there's nothing <laughs> different except some people are better than others um, you know when you look in the code people would name variables like X and A yeah. and oops or your mama your mama was the global variable. We needed to keep her consistent. You know, treat her like a lady. Um, so, yeah, we, we actually spent, I would say, 
from the 2012 period, a period of two or three years of very strongly dedicated time. First, we, did, we ended up found out what subversion was. And then we're like, we don't have time to go through each individual code and opt into it. Let's let everybody play in it, including people who hard-coded binaries in there. So subversion all of a sudden was like 100 gigs of rat's nest. Yeah. That was scary. Like, I just checked this out, and it took me three hours. Why is that? Three, yeah. yeah You're lucky at three hours in 2012 or uh, 100 so, gigs. So in any case, um, we actually started at that point we separated everybody into things they were exceptionally good at, algorithmics, software engineering, system administration. That was cool. And delivering. And once we started doing that, we started building this kind of process to where people were responsible for code. The problem is, is that you still have folks like myself who are talking directly to clients, and they say, I need something that does this. Okay, let me hack it up real quick. Real easy. I don't it's always the managers who do that. It's always the managers and the directors. Yeah, so that case, uh, so what are you trying to say, Paul? Um, <laughs> Just saying. That's uh, who does it, right, James? It, in any case, from that 1,100 pieces of code, and at that point it was about 6 million lines of code. Um, in a year or two and a half years, we probably cut that down. number of pieces of independent software now to 300, 400 oh, that's pieces. Great. That's cool. Uh, shored them all up. Sounds like a lot of work. A lot of people spend a lot of work. Not myself, because I'm like, I'm not a computer scientist. Oh, yeah, most of that code is mine. I'm not a programmer. I'm a biologist. I work in the lab. I did it because you guys couldn't do it fast enough. <laughs> By fast, I meant, you know, it's like telling your kid to bake the cake, and they throw the Duncan Hines mix in, and they literally throw an egg in there, and then they shake it in this box <laughs> and pour it in this thing. I said, I made this cake. I have a feeling it's better than that. Okay. Well, right. the biologist, yeah, anyway. Uh, it is a good bit better, but it is exceedingly difficult um, to, to get to that point. And then we started hiring real programmers. You look at this and you say, send me a sample of your code. And I looked at it, I was like, what is this? It's like looking at Independence Day and looking at it, it's like, wow, that makes, that makes, I've never done this before, but that looks great. Did it, did it look better or readable? You just understand it. Yeah, for yeah. readable. Oh, yes. Like, like looking at a, like, like looking at an equation, um, like a nice, elegant, discrete math proof. Right. You're like, right. oh, yeah. I don't, what are we doing? Everybody listening to this is software engineers or tech entrepreneurs. They know what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, that's why I went back to the discrete math part. Everybody had to do that in school. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it became a sign that maybe the biologists, and I'll group all the folks that, that have the lab part stuff, even though they all do program. Either they have minors in computer science or they program 60% of their time. They do it because it's an end to a mean, mm -hmm. or a means to an end. Right. And once you start seeing that, you talk to people about these things, and you think about like a requirement. Well, some of your list of requirements. When we had to, when we had to do our first software pipeline, and someone asked, "Show me your your system validation documents." I'm like, "You mean my email that told everybody I was going to make this program, <laughs> and to leave me alone and let me just make it because I knew what I was doing, and they would just waste my time?" That email. Like, no, 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 the thing that you tested it. It's like, well, clearly it works because we're using it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, and now, of course, we have to handle things like FPDA audits yeah. because now that that's software is actually ask. getting, um, someone's getting a, a, a treatment or someone's being diagnosed with a disease based on things that these biologists and, yeah. yeah. Um, the process now is airtight. I like to think that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I, I picture, you know, 
the welcoming of chaos monkeys to try to break our code because the human biology is incredibly complex. Yeah. This is not like a data stream going into a financial database or an Amazon database. Biology is so complicated, you're going to get data you never thought you saw, and you can never predict it. All you need to be able to do is increase your ability to detect it. So that, that brings up a question I've been thinking about since uh, about a half an hour ago, and that was... The last time you got to talk? Well, uh, okay, so you've, you've got mass amounts of data, and like you said, it's the, you know, the variation in the data you get, I guess it sounds like it's harder to categorize it and be able to say this is right, this is wrong. But at the same time, if you're processing this much data, you have to have some way of, of verifying that, you know, the processing that you're encoding in your in your in your Perl or whatever, that it's that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and not doing things that's not. In other words, how are you testing all of this? Great question. So I would say about two years ago we hired a person who does testing. Like it's like what does that mean? I don't know what a tester is. And I'm sitting here interviewing people for testing and even a business analyst. So I heard I needed this person. So here you are. What is it that you do? <laughs> I mean, I know my code works. How are you going to make me money? You don't know my code. You don't know how it works. i got to give you the data. I could have run that tool myself. That was ignorant me three so years it ago. Sounds like a humbling experience for you. Uh, unneeded hubris. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, the appreciation now has greatly changed. Uh, nonetheless, how are you testing that? So once we finally agreed that the software that we had, and I mentioned earlier kind of jokingly that, of course it works because we use it. Well, the fact that we had used it on tens of thousands of samples um, robustly and it didn't break, we're like, this is probably pretty good stuff. Let's put this in the bin of, like, code platinum. <laughs> um Let's build a clinical device out of this. Let's build an ability to someone. We, our laboratory stuff was always great, but the software lagged behind as far as a, when, an, when a pharmaceutical company decided they want to send all their patients and pay you all this money, and they'd ask, let me look at your software stuff. I'm like, here it is. They're like, what is this? It's like, whoa, it's the, it's the one root directory. We keep all the software. No, there's not any structure in it. It's just if you need a Perl file, just do star-pl. If you need an R file, do star-r. You'll find it. It's named appropriately. <laughs> we actually started doing unit tests. Each individual module, each individual header, and each individual function, we would write code that says, if you were working appropriately, you should be able to handle data types of this or did, streams of that. Did it immediately give you feedback that you were a little bit surprised at? Or did it take a while? Well, the thing is we were already pre-biased because we're doing it retroactively. So yeah. we made code that we already know worked. Did, did, you, did you write tests uh, that were just compliance tests, basically? That that's a great way to phrase it. I'm sure that's probably the appropriate terminology. We didn't know that was the case, but that's probably exactly what we did. But you didn't necessarily go back and look at what are the negative test cases? What are the, the boundary test cases? What are the negative yeah. test cases? It works. How do I break it? Um, yeah, we didn't do that because um, we didn't know how to do that because we made it for the purpose of working. We didn't sit here and think about how we blow it up. Right? right. This is not bridge over the Kwai. Right. Um, so we started writing unit tests. Even I started writing unit tests, and that was a humbling experience for two reasons. Number one, I'm thinking about my background and being like, why in the hell am I trying to create a data set to break this tool? That is, first of all, taking me forever. You know, I'm spending weeks on this one tool. Now, of course, I use that tool probably thousands of times a day. Or <laughs> I say tool, let's say a module or yeah. something that you know, compartmentalizes. Um, 
But I'm thinking, like, three weeks to test this is bullshit. <laughs> it's way too much time. I could be doing other things. Um, so it was humbling in that fact because I was not spending my time, quote, unquote, appropriately. Now, fast forward to the future, it was totally appropriate. And then the second part was, you know, for me hounding on the testers, you're, you're taking too long. Why is this taking too long? Well, I mean, this is ridiculous. Why don't you just run this thing that does all these different tests? I'll give you all these data sets. And you talked about automated testing. We're not there yet, but I'm like, I could do this. I could write a tool that does all these tests. Sure you could. Well, yeah. Why validate that tool? That's not necessary. Because <laughs> it just runs all these things that I wrote. And I know they're correct. So once you actually really start looking at the documentation and having somebody try to break it, that's when you become understanding that uh, boundary conditions. So did, that you, was, did that you start was seeing things once you started putting sequences in? And Like you said, for instance, you took three weeks to... To work hypothetically, you took three yeah. weeks to work on this one particular module and write tests around it. Um, did you did you find things that would break it? I mean, did you? Oh yeah, it, sure. So it but I wouldn't test that originally because I'm like, why would we get that data set? Yeah. Well, and guess and then what? you skipped ahead. Then you skipped ahead a couple of years and you said it turned out to be valuable. Is that because you started seeing cases um, that you had actually tested for previously? Uh, in some cases, yeah, and in some cases, things that you had not tested. Because if before. we talk, if we go to the risk analysis section, you know, uh, you can get high risk if you have undetectability, right? Doesn't matter the frequency if you're unable to detect when it breaks. Yeah, you don't know, right? You're hosed, right? Um, and so that, of course, is still our problem. I mentioned earlier, biology is very complicated, and so we're but that's, that sounds changes. like it's going to be a problem until we. And then that's that why everything's basically like a medium risk, but the impact we. We get as low as possible, and the um, was it? I forget what the other third thing is for the risk assessment because I'm, I'm thinking on my toes here. But uh, impact detectability and um, frequency, well, and we know that stuff is low, but always the detectability is hard. So now we found out ways to detect it. We wrote suites, we created custom code, we found we wrote a tool to make data that would break cool. the code. Um, kind of like fuzz, fuzzed your... You can think about it like that. Now I know what that means. I'm like, that's exactly, that was a perfect term for that. <laughs> uh, you know, there's other bit people are thinking about this for quite some, quite some time, but um, it, it became a very, a very useful thing. But I will say um, the harmonization of the folks that are more classically trained to those that are the developers. So in my shop, the developer is the one who is the business analyst is the developer, writes the features, writes the requirements, makes the code in the end. Now, of course, if you actually write real functional requirements to give to a tester, they're like, whatever, it does this thing. Just you test to it. We're still working on that. Um, we're getting a lot better at it. But it is, um, building that process and how do you test, it, it is, is uh, very difficult finding the right data sets. May, you have to make them sometimes because we can't perceive we'll get something a certain way. Anyway. Well, and, and so I guess getting back to kind of the process part, hopefully I'm not jumping in on, on you, James. You were the one who kind of prompted this this line of, of thought. Yeah. Um, I, I guess getting back into the methodology part of this, you said that, that your methodology had grown over time. Um, one of the things that I think is important to point out is that this is a multi, multi-million dollar business in terms of revenue. I don't know what it is. I know that you guys are private now. You used to be a part of a larger corporation that's sure. publicly owned, and I could probably go back and look at the reports for that, but I didn't. Yeah, um, yeah so no, and yeah, I mean, the software that we, we now, when we got bought by, so it was a startup company, it got bought, you know, 
August of 2012 by Quintiles, which is a large global CRO, which hired us because they're able to enter into the big data era. What is big data? No, it's not the people who are doing targeted ads in Target. Yes, that's a part of it. But we're doing big data on people. People is my <laughs> list of transactions. It's like soylent data. Once we, once we did that, yeah, I mean, we were a profitable business. And I think from my starting, we grew anywhere from our lowest year of 18% to median of 20, 30% year over year growth. And, and I so it's, 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 you know, several dozen million dollars a year. Right. Yes. So, so I guess what I'm trying to get at is um, I would imagine there are a lot of people out there who think, okay, there's, there's one particular type of methodology that could work in building software and in creating things from software. And it only, we know that it works because of the value that it creates and because of the amount of money that the company brings in. Yours is a company that doesn't necessarily speed. follow. What's that? Speed is in, is more important than any of those And that's things. exactly that's exactly what I, what I imagine is the case for you guys is that speed is a huge factor. So if you were to the driving more, factor, if you were to make your process more cumbersome by implementing some of the things in some of these well known methodologies, it could actually cost you a lot of money. So you yeah. you have certain requirements that are built into your organization and built into your line of business. Um, that a typical application development shop doesn't have. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe there are some things that we can learn from that. Um, yeah. Because everybody would like software faster. Um, Who doesn't? But it's just the whole dogma of you want it, how's it, speed, quality, and what's the third thing? Uh, good, fast, and cheap. Cheap. Well, we don't have to worry about the cheap. It had to be good and fast. And I've even sacrificed the good for fast. Um, just because we're an, I mean, we're an innovation unit. We can only develop the newest of technologies, the newest of things. We get weeks or months to develop things. So I am now completely familiar with things like Agile. Uh, in, my, in my group, that wouldn't work um, because that means you had all these people and all these roles in place to sit down and think about the thing. The problem is it's so complicated. Only one person knows how it works the time of that person spending to educate everybody how all these pieces should work so we can create you know a new bible of code it's impossible and impractical so that person just writes the code themselves because it's their expertise right uh, i mean it takes a phd just to to work on this stuff right i mean in some case yeah i mean i like I, i like to think that not but considering I have a team of entirely PhDs. <laughs> I would not be practicing what I preach. Right, yes. right, and you're not going to find too many folks that are product managers or, uh, or, or or scrum masters that have a PhD in bio. No, they're not. And I tell you what, if I found such a person, anybody listening, you'd hire them right away, right? Holla! Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I let Paul and James circle my LinkedIn or yeah. Twitter feed, Twitter account, or anything along those lines. I'm always hiring. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, meet at conferences or I, no I mean like if they hear this podcast how would they get it um, I do have a LinkedIn account Vic, you know all lowercase Victor Wigman I have a Twitter handle Big V Big W E-I-G-M-A-N uh, people can contact me uh, through that way and the good old fashioned Google stalking will also probably populate <laughs> more things than not um, I try to keep somewhat of a social media presence but most of that gets squelched by, by marketing even if it's only completely appropriated <laughs> the risk of it potentially not being held appropriate is important gotcha. um, but, but nonetheless it is, it, that's actually the biggest problem that we have is that 
when you're talking to a client or a sponsor, the person who generates the idea for the code. You know, and it doesn't have to be necessarily a hospital network or a drug developer from my end. It could be some other, you know, thinker at a software shop. We need code that does this, and at the end of the day, we just make this little text file that does that. So you guys know how to do that because you're smart. In our cases, no. They don't know because all the pieces, because the technology evolves every three to six months, what it took people two years to understand for that data stream is already obsolete. Mm. So we have to maintain a constant, and we do this now, training of testers and software engineers bi-weekly mm. of like, you know that thing that you spent a whole year on? Yeah, we blew that all up because that doesn't work anymore. That's too slow. And they're like, what do you mean? Nonetheless. Um, I won't go into that kind of detail, but... So you have a person, you have that core developer who is the driver of that entity. Now we've started, and only very recently, and I say recently now in the December, you know, November, December 2015 to 2016 area, we're the one who figures it out. You go on the whiteboard, you draw out all the pieces, you draw out all the modules, you figure it out. We now have folks who been around jargon enough to know, I'm going to tackle this little piece, and I'm going to tackle that little other little piece. But basically, the developer builds on all this stuff. We can't have routine scrums because it's just the one or two guys. By guys, I mean that gender-neutral sense because I do have ladies that program too, um, who are now driving all this stuff and now tossing over the bridge as fast as they can make it. Oh, I think this would be a good data set. So it's really, really tough. I've participated in scrums. You know, that could never work because you need too many other people contributing and you can't because it's normal. I would say we're more of a, and we're getting out of this, we were only classically waterfall if we want to get to methodology because we had to have all the tool working it this way and all the data had to check and we made all this quality control and then it had to move to the next step. Well, once you test that, if it fails, the whole thing is jaggered and your timelines are terrible. So we're going to do waterfall. Mm -hmm. We do some iterative. So I would say we're quasi-iterative, quasi-agile now because not that we'll move anywhere in agile because I still don't see how it works in my particular business yet. But um, we now have enough folks where we understand the test. We actually, everyone, the tester, the business analyst, the project manager, the developer, me, who still follows all those roles um, as well, sit down and we handhold literally for multiple hours a day walking through what it takes to make the product. We have a real life cycle. We're a life company, but we're a data company, but now we have real tools that are life cycles. They live and breathe their products with versions. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been a slog to get through the 1,100 pieces of code into something that's actually elegant and you It's defensible. Yeah. You know what's interesting is it sounds like the, the biggest piece of this puzzle is the knowledge that an individual has to have in order to work on this. It's the complexity of the problem. And the product, the, the software product that you're making, which is not actually the product that you're selling, it sounds like, but the software oh, product that you're making is so tied to that knowledge that there are, only, there are very, very few people who can even understand it and much less um, make, it, make it work. It takes forever to hire people. Right, right. So... That seems very different. Um, it, it, every environment that I go into, uh, they're all different. Every every domain is different. Whether it's you know mobile advertising or um, 
what are some other industries, healthcare analytics or something like that, whatever it is, each one of them has their own vocabulary, their own hard, hard to understand complexities, th- things that are just difficult to grasp. You don't get into those on day one, but you get into them by day 30, mm-hmm. right? You get into them by day 60. It sounds like you don't get into these without a, without the yeah, we've eight, had, eight we've had testers now, or whatever, we've right? had test, testers now for you know, a year and a half that's still looking they're not even close. the code. I mean, they're a hell of a lot closer now. And it's taken a long time for someone like myself who understands the, how it all works because we built it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to understand why you don't, why don't you get that? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's so much domain knowledge. And keep in mind, not only are the algorithms changing, the technology is changing, the data is changing, the instruments that are generating the data is far outpassing Moore's Law for volume. So now if we don't have the fastest IOPS on our hard drives, we're wasting time. In fact, we have one machine that's just fiber optic connected to RAM yeah, to not have data what, loss. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, is this place just all all fabric all over the place? I mean, you, you must have a really, really cool setup. It also sounds it like... It is pretty fun. I will it say like it's a cool da- setup. It sounds like your data is something that you don't you wouldn't allow to go to some third party. You don't have the time to upload it to... And we don't have time anyway. to explain it to the third party. And well, but I mean, if it were some type of cloud service where you just had... <laughs> Who has that kind of Amazon money? Right. Yeah, we can't do that. Right. Because right. the egress and the cost of storing that volume of data is so expensive that we it's cheaper for us to build it ourselves. Yeah. And so we did. Yeah. I mean, so we did it in collaboration with some third party companies, but we had to build it. Right, right. How are you doing, James? Are you sitting there eating popcorn or what? <laughs> I was just enjoying the conversation. I, I like the I like the answers that I got. I kind of filled in some of the darker corners of how exactly do you wrangle this beast? Um, I guess that we're still not we're still not uh, uh, there yet. But I will say it's been a lot of not just the PhD folks just coding it art, but. A lot of basically consider we have actually have lecture halls on our new facility now. Oh wow! Two of them, real legitimate lecture halls. I have to get you to come by and check it out I'd sometime. Like to see but we're teaching the testers and the hardcore software engineer guys the complicated genomic type technology. In step, we're learning about testing and we're learning about diabolic, specifically diabolical testing a lot because it's hard to break this fuzzing. How do we break our code? Um, learning how to write things smartly. Yeah. You know, I can write a requirement. They're like, well, how do you test that? What do you mean, how do you test that? It's obvious to me. <laughs> to you, because you can do it. So. But uh, clearly I was ineffective in doing it. So wrangling it is constant education and tapering that with when the deadline and objective is. And um, in a new technology space, understanding that no matter what timeline that you set, you're going to surpass it. Yeah. Because you you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, you, you've been listening to Reflection as a Service, the podcast about software development and entrepreneurship. We're here today with Vic Wigman from Expression Analysis talking about genomics. It's been a really interesting conversation, I guess. You know, a couple more thoughts from, from me. One is I wanted to learn a, bit, a little bit more about your culture. I know that you guys were in... Uh, Durham, just outside of the Research Triangle mm-hmm. Park. Are you still in that location? Oh, no, we've moved into Morrisville, still outside of Research Triangle mm-hmm. Park. But, right, but, but we're still outside of the coast. Yeah, right. yeah, we're right off of Miami. Okay, cool. Cool. And then uh, tell us a little bit about your culture, like as a company, how it's changed over time and what it's like now. Because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of these folks listening, I assume, are software engineers. And, um, we all, you know, have a 
big beards now, and like they all just like lumberjacks, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, what, what is? And, and everybody's expecting a machine in the in the office. You know, Man, all those office. things that you just said that we do have. You do have all of those. Things you have lumberjacks. You, you have, we have folk, folks that have very long beards. Do you have drones. We have some people that fly them around from time to time, but I generally throw a notebook at them because I let them know that you know, airspace is a controlled territory. <laughs> Don't fly unless you stand to protect. Nerf guns, hoverboards, and all of that. I like to think we have some of the Nerf guns the, the big wig of the corporate shop because now the headquarters of the state company that are outside 20 other people is now with us. Before in the past, our corporate overlords were, you know, while they were a mile away, they weren't in our building. Right. But now that's not the case. Executive committee is in our new building. We are the headquarters of this new company, which is a wild thing to think about. Of going from complete startup phase where everybody's wearing short T-shirt flip-flops, even in the lab, gasp. <laughs> um, you know, or maybe a tank top, or programming outside, mm-hmm. or you know, you know what you do? It's two o'clock. Let's just drink outside. That sounds great. <laughs> the ethos of the company and, and the entrepreneurship is what I did want to highlight from coming to here. Um, having some a lot of entrepreneurship in my, in my past going forward, the type of company that we've had has created an environment to where the nurturing and fostering and growth of new ideas is not only welcomed but practiced. As such, for someone like myself, I've not sought elsewhere because I can fulfill all those needs here. I'm, I'm only limited by my ability to galvanize my things to create new things. And not just for the corporation. It's ind- I can immediately see it helping folks. And because we've had senior leadership that focuses on the people, they're not these crazy CEOs that are far down the road, that are all faced on money. If, we, if tough times hit us, tough times hit us all. And past, you know, our, our past CEO you know, would hook everybody up. It's like, you know, if we all did real bad this year, you know what? We're all going to do real bad. Here's my bonus. I dispense it out to all you guys. You know, they knew that we're all in it for the right Everybody came in. Even if you could do the program, you could do the thing, the management was there. Um, and that was a still small company, a 30-person shop. And keep in mind, when I say small company, we were in a storage facility, you know, like where Walter White stored his, <laughs> stored his pyramids of cash. Um, it's like the metal roll yeah, yeah, doors. Yeah, 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 exactly awesome. that kind of place. Um, and there was some off- – the climate control places is where the people were. Um, but – it was cool. Nobody cared about that. People would come in, these pharma companies that spent all this money with us and come to visit us. And they're like, what the hell is this place? I was like, it's the place that works. Yeah. Everybody is on the same purpose. Your samples are handed. You want to know where this patient sample is? It's right here. Mm-hmm. Right, how do I know this thing? Yeah, it's a clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> but you asked it, I told you immediately. Nonetheless, um, but everybody was aligned and everybody held different hats. Why, why we didn't get erosion from the very beginning is nobody was too big or too small to do anything. Mm-hmm. Our CEO would go get lunch for people, you know, or we would get shipments from hospitals and he's in there with his gloves on and the liquid nitrogen and putting you things and putting stickles on. Like Everyone had skin yeah. in the game. It did, yeah, we had profit sharing and yeah, he'd get paid if that worked out well, but everybody did. Yeah. Um, so nobody was too big or too small to do the task. Just like the same thing for my team. I would hire people that were PhDs in the lab, and they'd be like, well, why do I have to code, or why do I have to go to here? Why do I have to take hard drives out of this NAS or plug in these tapes, the LTO4 tapes for our backup? Why do I have to do that? Because I need you to do it right, right. now. <laughs> and you know, it took one or two times of saying that before people would just do it independently. 
because everybody would talk to each other. Everybody it was, it was harmonious in that regard, and we knew that at the end of the day, or at the end of the year, again, this is 17 to 30 percent growth year over year for at least the seven years I was working there, including through the recession. Um, quality, and that people would redo everything. It's like you know this. Uh, grandma who burns a batch of cookies, she ain't serving it to their kids. She throws it all in the trash can and she makes from the beginning and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So the foster of mistakes were okay. Admit to it. Find out how you did it. Never do it again. No one's too big or too small for any task, including cleaning up a toilet. In our case, again, we're a small company, so it could have been cleaning up a toilet. It really right. could have been. Right. Or buying soap. Yeah. If you found it, you fixed it. And if you didn't, then you hurt the overall entity. Nobody was too smart or too stupid to talk to anyone else. So no one had to be elitist based on knowledge. Right. Um, and I think that's a bigger erosion in a lot of software shops that I see because some people find themselves as like, you know, super script kitties get things right away. So why do I need to tell you? Because you didn't solve this problem in these eight lines of code. Yeah. And that's inappropriate because wait till there's a problem that comes along that person. Assuming, hi- assuming right. hiring is robust. Mm-hmm. That's important, right? Um, and I feel like we've very done it. And I, I would like to mention this kind of uh, environment that we have. Turnover has been very minimal. I bet. Very, uh, senior management has never left. It sounds really rewarding, too. It is. And that's, again, why I've, I've, the, for me, the entrepreneurship is developed within the company. And we look for people who want to build careers. Right. This is not the next stepping stone. This is the end point. And I yeah. think, um, and while I'm allowed, I'm going to pat each other on the back some, I would say the, the Kool-Aid is not something that was served by someone on high, but it poured out of the walls. Mm-hmm. You just held hand and drank from it because um, people were aligned. Now, as we've gotten a lot larger and we've had to get to all these different entities and handle regulated stuff, yeah, it gets a little bit of a drag. But at the end of the day, I feel like everybody is still independently motivated because they know now they know if they get all this stuff done, this person may get a drug that cures their cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Or fills their disease. Right. Now it's self, and you, you, we see, you know, we can actually have, and we do this um, routinely. Um, the CEO tells all the financials, every minuscule bit of it. Everything's as transparent as humanly could be. Hey guys, I screwed the pooch. I get this deal. We lost $500,000. It's my fault. Mm-hmm. I got to deal with this. Here's how I'm going to do it. But, we can show pictures, the patients, um, before and after. There's also some, you know, cool, somewhat celebrity stories where we can tell internally, which I can't talk about here. Where it's like, look what oh, we did, come on. Look what we did for this guy. Look what we did for this guy. Um, I would say, you know, for some larger organizations, there are certain past presidents with certain indications that we've actually got to do stuff on. Oh, cool. Um, through a larger corporate entity. Um, uh, I'll keep it nebulous in that regard. But nonetheless, um, you know that now, as opposed to this vaporware that we were making, I say vaporware when you compare it to other people, but because we took the time to educate everybody, even if you were the one who was emptying garbage or collecting samples or signing out for FedEx, you knew what everybody else was doing. And you would talk to each other and actually kind of co-mingle responsibilities that now when you get a success and you show a picture of you know, patient X who's now cancer free, or um, you come a pharmaceutical company. It's like because of you, we took this thing to trial, and now people don't have to have six months going five days a day on chemo because that's what yeah. you did. It's it's it doesn't need a pat on the back. It doesn't need an extra bonus. People are are self motivated in that. So that I think is how that ethos is built. And again, 
CEOs, VPs, whoever they are, they come down. We have socials. They grab beers. They don't talk about work. They talk about not work. Yeah. Family, yeah, yeah. They they do talk about family. Their socials at their house. You know, you know their kids. You know their grandkids. You know everybody else. And if it wasn't that way, we wouldn't be able to be as efficient. Because what's the motivation for someone working twelve hours on a tight timeline for something like even the software cases? How unrewarding is that? Well, if you know that in doing that, you now offer this entity that couldn't have been done before, and it could even help somebody like your mom, right? That that I think is the rewarding piece that's allowed us to it is to be very agile in a mobility sense, yet uh, churn through that work. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I, I got to tell you, there was a point in time when I had realized that I had worked a whole lot of hours uh, over a period of a few years, and the end result was that I was selling ringtones to eighth graders. And, uh, oh, how I wanted those hours back. <laughs> so I would imagine the very, very few people that work with you guys over at Expression Analysis feel that way. It's a really good story. Um, and to, to yeah. hear that that's something that's built up in this area over time and has done so much good work for so many people is really awesome. Uh, and I know you guys must uh, get a lot of pat on the backs, but we do, we do a lot of it internally. I would say we're the, we're the, uh, uh, best kept secret around yeah. with no, there's no marketing pretty much word of mouth for everything. But as I, as I mentioned, and what we didn't get a chance to go into to fantastic detail, but to touch on is that we are a, a data and software shop. Yeah. Although every, that's a very small portion and percentage of the people that we have, you know, when you're pouring down eight to 10 terabytes of binary data a day, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. People are generating that. So basically you've got all these people feeding the machine literally and figuratively. And then at the end, all these automated processes, all these steps that we've now taken through the area of testing and even software engineers are like, how do you guys even function? And then they look to see how we approach problems. They're like, "Uh, uh, Oh yeah. They're waiting for this large, super big process. Like they had at fidelity or chase or, you know, and like to tell them what to do. And the answer was, no, you saw that the enemy was coming in on the flank, so you picked up a rifle and you charged right. at them. No one needed to give you an order. You saw what needed to be done. And, um, there, and there, there aren't enough places out there where people are empowered to do that and directed to do that. Uh, yeah, your, your, prim, your prime directive is fix the problem. Get it done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Well, thank you so much, Vic, for joining us. Once again, Vic Wigman from Expression Analysis, a Q-squared company. And, uh, and we really enjoyed it, learning a little bit about genomics. For everybody out there, um, thanks so much for listening to us. We always appreciate you listening. Once again, I'm Paul Merrill from Beaufort, Fairmont. Our mission is to rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. Find us on the web at beaufortfairmont.com. And I'm joined by my co-host, James Jeffers. That's me. From Code Providence. We help other people write software that makes a big impact. Uh, once again, hey, SpaceX is going to land something tomorrow on a barge. Sunday <laughs> at 1.40. We talked about I don't think they've they've not successfully done that yet, have they? They have not. And I saw the video from last time, and it was really cool looking. I mean, they got real close. So I think they're going to do it tomorrow. Nice. It shouldn't be so hard. When I was coaching Odyssey of the Mind, I got a, a fourth grader to take a parachute with some straws and an egg to land in a bucket from five stories. I mean, they were they were eight. Sounds similar. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is a fourteen story. 
rocket. It's way that will longer land vertically that. on a platform that's no, like 300 yards by 140 <laughs> yards. Good luck with that on chocolate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be awesome. And what I learned about this, James, the other day I was reading about it, that it cost $60 million to build a Falcon 9 rocket. rocket. It only costs 200000 to refuel the thing. So if they're able to reuse these things and do things like this, land it on a barge, um, and cut costs even more because they let, use less fuel landing it on a barge than trying to find a specific area in the, in the, on land to come back to land, um, that's a huge win for space. So anyway, I'm looking forward to it tomorrow. I'm going to try to get this podcast out as soon as possible. Thank you all for listening. Once again, review us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and we've enjoyed it. Have a good night.